Hello, it's Monday the 29th of January and welcome to our revamped Career 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. North Korea has published details about the strategic cruise missile it tested on Sunday, seen as part of the regime's push to arm its navy with nuclear weapons. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. We'll then take a look at some of the major headlines from around the world in our new segment, Global News Roundup. And then in our news and people section, we'll continue to bring in-depth news analysis of issues in Korea with expert voices, as well as interviews with newsmakers. And for today, we have our weekly segment, Monday Sports Roundup, coming up as well. Let's begin our new look, Korea 24. North Korea conducted another test of a new strategic cruise missile on Sunday. This comes just four days after the first test launch of the Pulhasal-331. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Chen. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jango. So it was another weapons test by North Korea. The launch was supervised by leader Kim Jong-un, according to the regime's state media. And it was reportedly part of efforts to upgrade naval weapon systems and bolstering nuclear deterrence. So can you tell us more? On Monday, the regime released photos of Kim Jong-un observing a submarine-launched strategic cruise missile test the previous morning. According to South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff on Sunday, the launch was detected from waters off the north port city of Shinpo in South Hamgyong province at around 8 a.m. The verifiability of Pyongyang's submarine claim is yet unsubstantiated. Rather, the launch came just four days after an inaugural test of a new strategic cruise missile, dubbed the Purasa 331. The regime's state media KCNH said on Monday that the launch the previous day was of the same new missile and reported a flight time of two hours and three minutes and two hours and four minutes before hitting a preset target on an islet in the East Sea. The report added that the test is in line with Kim Jong-un's call for accelerating nuclear weaponization of the Navy to bolster the state of nuclear deterrence. He also inspected the construction of a nuclear submarine and other new types of warships and identified pressing tasks for relevant sectors as well as state measures to be pursued to that end. On Monday, the JCS, the JCS rather, said it believes the details of the flight claimed by North Korea were exaggerated as the regime still has not completed development of solid fuel. Meanwhile, the United States has reaffirmed its commitment to the defence of South Korea against threats from North Korea. That's right. A U.S. Defense Department spokesperson said on Sunday that Washington has articulated its understanding of the threat posed by the regime's military programs while emphasizing America's commitment to the defense of South Korea and Japan, as well as the maintenance of regional peace and stability. The U.S. is monitoring the North's activities and will continue to work with both Seoul and Tokyo to address threats posed by Pyongyang. The official mentioned North Korea has increasingly engaged in threatening and irresponsible military activities and urged the regime to engage in serious and sustained diplomacy. Let's turn to our other headlines now. Early this month, a man... A man attacked Democratic Party leader Lee Jae-myung with a knife, of course. And then on Monday, prosecutors formally arrested the suspect surnamed Kim on charges of attempted murder. Can you tell us more? 
The Busan District Prosecutor's Office's special investigation team conducted a comprehensive supplementary investigation, including an analysis of video of the crime, additional DNA testing, and an examination of the 66-year-old suspect's bank account, as well as call history. They concluded there were no accomplices or masterminds after questioning 18 people connected to the suspect. There's evidence the attack was politically motivated, so the suspect is also being charged with violating the Public Official Election Act. The man tracked down the DP leader at four different events, including a, at a protest against Japan's release of contaminated water held in Busan last June. Meanwhile, there was another attack on a Korean, politi- Korean politician last week. Uh, People Power Party lawmaker Bae Hyun-jin was attacked on Thursday by a teenage boy with a rock. In light of this, authorities are quickly moving to improve protection of politicians from harm's way. That's right. The National Police Agency will form a task force to protect politicians, track threats and arrest the perpetrators. Commissioner Yoon Yigun on Monday brief ruling PPP floor leader Yoon Jae-ok and policy committee chairman Yoo Yi-dong at the National Assembly on measures to protect candidates and lawmakers in the run-up to the April general elections. Police patrol activities will be increased with a focus on preventing recurrence of cases similar to stabbing of the DP chair Lee Jae-myung and the attack on PPP Baeun-jin with a blunt object. Recent trends indicate high-profile politi- politicians, regardless of all affiliations, may be at high risk of assault. The DP slammed the government for downplaying the attack against its chief, even raising suspicion that the Office for Government Policy Coordination's Counterterrorism Department is attempting to minimize or conceal the incident. In other news, President Yoon Sang-yeol held a luncheon with the ruling PPP's interim leader and floor leader. He urged the government and ruling camp to double their efforts to enhance people's livelihood. So what more was said? Well, during Monday's session with interim PPP chief Han Dong-un and floor leader Yoon Jae-ok held at the top office, with a focal point being pushing to ensure uh, people's livelihoods are improved to a degree that citizens can clearly feel the difference. Extensive discussions were held on various issues concerning people's livelihood, including housing and building underground pathways for trains even. They agreed to continue negotiations at the National Assembly on the application of the Serious Accidents Punishment Act for workplaces with fewer than 50 employees so that no small business business owners will suffer. Regarding the latest series of attacks targeting politicians to try to express concerns and the president urged related agencies to swiftly devise related measures. Moving on, the South Korean government expressed hopes that the removal of a monument dedicated to wartime Korean wartime forced laborers in Japan's uh, Kunma prefecture will be addressed in a way that won't hamper friendly bilateral relations. Can you tell us more? Over in Japan's Kunma prefecture, a monument dedicated to Koreans forced into hard labor in that country during the colonial era was erected in 2004 with the help of a civic group in Japan to promote understanding of the tragic history and improve bilateral ties moving forward. Uh, the wall has the phrase remembrance, reflection and friendship engraved in Korean, Japanese and English. And on Monday, when asked to comment on the Japanese prefecture's plan to remove the monument, a foreign ministry official in Seoul revealed the stance to reporters. It's identical to the one issued by the ministry last Tuesday that both sides are continuously holding communications on the matter. Kunma Prefecture is set to complete the removal by February 11th. And when asked about the Japanese government's stance on the matter, the country's chief cabinet secretary, Yoshimasa Hayashi, said the decision is made by Kunma Prefecture. 
Turning to the economy next, the central bank warned that indications of slowing inflation does not mean that the nation has entered a phase of price growth stabilization. Can you tell us more? In a report on Monday, the BOK's monetary policy department said a review of inflation expectations must consider persistent factors over price adjustment along with the possibility of an additional cost shock. The bank cited an end to government policies such as fuel tax cuts or the deferral of public utility fee hikes. Citing past instances of a failed entry into inflationary stabilization, most were the results of inattention to the last-mile risk of misinterpreting the post-inflationary shock-based effect as the start of stability. The central bank mentioned past cases of success involved monetary tightening consistently enforced for a considerable time in tandem with policy efforts toward macroeconomic stability. And finally, the state cultural heritage agency will launch a survey to determine whether to designate taekwondo and temple food as a national intangible cultural property. According to the Cultural Heritage Administration, on Monday it will begin the new classification survey for eight items, including the Buddhist paintings of Sanwa and a traditional hunting technique of Mesanyang using trained hogs. Also on the list, Ulsan Seburisori, a song sung by laborers while collecting and processing iron, as well as traditional bullfighting. A Taekwondo, Hangul calligraphy, Kaya Jinyong Shinje, a traditional religious ceremony, and temple food, which were previously reviewed for designation in 2019 and 2020, are all being reconsidered. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 22.09 points, or 0.89% on Monday, to close the day at 2,500.65. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ fell, however, dropping 18.10 points, or 2.16%, to close at 819.14. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 0.61 against the U.S. dollar closing the day at 1,335.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up on our show today, we have a brand new daily segment, Global News Roundup. As the title suggests, this is where we cover some of the international headlines of the day. And we do that with the help of a familiar voice for our regular listeners of the show. We have joining us in the studio, our KBS World Radio news editor, Gu Hijin. Hijin, hello, and it's uh, great to see you in this section of the show. See you. It's great to see you again, Chang'o. So we look forward to you guiding us through the international news issues of the day now. And we start today with the continuing conflict in the Middle East. U.S. President Joe Biden on Sunday vowed to hold to account those responsible for a drone attack on an outpost in Jordan. That incident left three U.S. Army soldiers dead and dozens more injured. So what can you tell us about this developing situation? Well, this marks the first time that U.S. troops have been killed by enemy fire in the Middle East since the beginning of the war in Gaza. According to Associated Press and CNN, U.S. Central Command confirmed the deaths and said eight personnel 
had to be medically evacuated from Jordan. The number of wounded is expected to rise. And Biden, who was travelling in South Carolina, was clearly emotional as he asked for a moment of silence uh, during an appearance at a Baptist church in Banquet Hall. Uh, and he told listeners that they had lost three brave souls in an attack in on one of our bases, that he, uh, he said, and he added that we shall respond. U.S. officials have been working to conclusively identify the precise group responsible for the attack, right? Indeed. AP reported that they have assessed that one of several Iranian-backed groups was behind it. And according to CNN, the Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella group for the uh, several uh, Iran-backed militias in the country, said it attacked a number of places along the uh, Jordan-Syria border on Sunday, including a camp near the U.S. base in Jordan where the soldiers were killed. The small installation which Jordan does not publicly uh, disclose, includes U.S. engineering, aviation, logistics and security troops. Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin said the troops were deployed there to work for the lasting defeat of ISIS. Uh, Three officials said the drone had struck near the troops' sleeping quarters, which they uh, said explained the high casualty count. According to CNN, U.S. troops have long used Jordan, a kingdom bordering Iraq, Israel, the Palestinian uh, territory of the West Bank, uh, Saudi Arabia and Syria as a basing point. Some 3,000 American troops typically are stationed across Jordan. Right, we should note, however, that despite their concerted efforts, the US government has yet to name a specific militia they hold responsible. Right, and CNN cited US officials saying that the drone that killed the US service members at Tower 22 was launched by an Iran-backed militant and appeared to come from Syria. Iran, meanwhile, has denied uh, that it played any role in the attack, according to AP. Uh, Secretary Austin said, quote, we will take all necessary actions to defend defend the U.S. and our troops and our interests. And immediately, uh, Iran-backed fighters in East Syria began evacuating their posts, fearing U.S. airstrikes, according to Omar Abu Leila, a Europe-based activist who heads the Deir uh, Izzor 24 media outlet. He told AP that the areas are the strongholds of Mayadeen and Bukamal. Yes, and we'll keep a close eye on the escalations in the Middle East, of course, which I feel we will unfortunately feature quite regularly on this new segment. Mm-hmm. Now we turn to the woes of the world's most indebted property developer. That is, of course, Evergrande Group, or Hangda in Chinese. They have been ordered to liquidate by a Hong Kong court in a massive setback for China's ailing real estate sector. What can you tell us? Well, according to Reuters, BBC, CNBC, um, uh, Judge Linda Chan of the Hong Kong High Court said enough is enough after the troubled developer repeatedly failed to come up with a plan to restructure its debts. The High Court's wind-up order, issued on Monday, comes after the embattled Chinese real estate giant and its overseas creditors failed to reach an agreement on how to restructure the company's massive debt. The court said it will hold another hearing in the afternoon, which may lead to the appointment of a liquidator for Evergrande. Uh, the beleaguered firm for, uh, borrowed heavily and defaulted on its debt back in 2021, sparking a massive property crisis in China's uh, China's economy, which continues to feel 
the effects uh, at the present time. The Shenzhen-based developer with uh, total liabilities of 2.39 trillion yuan or 333 billion US dollars at the end of June last year had filed for bankruptcy in New York in 2023. Yes, this will certainly have uh, ominous repercussions in the world's second largest economy. When Evergrande defaulted two years ago, it sent shockwaves through global financial markets. So what next for the embattled firm? Well, court-appointed liquidators will manage the company and sell its assets to pay off its debt. After the uh, process is complete, the company, previously China's second biggest real estate firm, will cease to exist. Yes, industry insiders say that Evergrande's offshore liquidation was mostly expected, but still a significant setback for an already troubled onshore real estate sector, one which will further decay investor sentiment. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on now to Paris and the Louvre Museum. That's because the Mona Lisa has been subject to yet another attack by climate protesters. So, can you tell us more about the attack? And importantly, has there been any damage? Uh, thankfully, no, there hasn't been any uh, damage to the 16th century uh, painting. A video posted by a social media uh, showed two women throwing soup at the glass, protect, uh, protecting Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece. Uh, and uh, on the website, the repost alimentaire food counterattack, uh, as it was called, accused the French government of breaking its climate commitments and called for the equivalent of France's state-sponsored health care system to be put in place to give people better access to healthy food while providing farmers with a decent income. The Louvre told BBC that members of Riposte Alimentaire, which it described as an environmental movement, sprayed pumpkin soup on the painting at around 10am local time and that there was no damage. Yes, the Mona Lisa is undeniably one of the world's most famous artworks, or even the most famous <laughs> artwork, some would say. Yes. However, it's been the subject of uh, multiple vandalism uh, attempts and even theft, which mm-hmm. has heightened security for the painting at the Louvre. Yes, the Louvre said uh, the Salle des Etats, where the work is displayed, was evacuated and reopened to, uh, to visitors at 11.30am after workers cleaned the area. And according to BBC, Paris has recently seen protests by farmers calling for an end to uh, rising fuel costs and for regulations to be simplified. On Friday, they blocked key roads in and out of Paris. Now, security for the Mona Lisa Lisa has been one of the museum's highest priority since the painting was stolen from the Louvre in 1911 by a Louvre employee uh, who had helped construct its initial glass case. It was returned in 1914. Now, during the 50s, a man tried to uh, steal it by cutting into the glass but failed. Then vandals tried to spray it with acid. And ever since, the Mona Lisa has been locked behind safety glass. In 2019, the museum said it installed a more transparent form of bulletproof glass for the painting. But despite that security, an activist threw cake at the painting in 2022, urging people to think of the earth. Okay, so another attack on the Mona Lisa of the weekend. That is, we're going to wrap it up for our inaugural Global News Roundup. Thank you for those stories, Hijin, and we'll see you again tomorrow. See you again. Hi, I'm professional golfer Tan Kim. You're now listening to Korea 24 on ABS World Radio.
Norway and Denmark recently announced that they're working to end adoptions from South Korea following a similar decision by Sweden two months earlier. The decisions came about after concerns were raised over falsified adoption records from South Korea, an issue brought to the fore by Danish adoptee attorney Peter Müller. Upon discovering discrepancies in his personal files, he began looking into other cases as well, and he soon found dozens of stories echoing his own. He founded the Danish Korean Rights Group in 2021, and then he led the charge to have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Korea include an examination of adoption practices in its investigation into the country's past human rights violations. To discuss his efforts to uncover the truth behind adoption records and what he hopes the Commission's findings will lead to, we have with us in the studio Peter Muller himself. Mr Muller, hello and thank you for sharing your time with us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Can we start with the uh, applications that the Danish Korean Rights Group submitted to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission back in uh, 2022, which included adoption records to be reviewed for possible falsification. So can you tell us how did this effort get started? Oh, it actually started uh, during the COVID-19 lockdown. We attended online uh, conferences in Korea. So actually started in Korea... uh, uh, Korean scholars, they told about their findings into adoption. And I actually asked one of the professors, uh, what are you going to do about it? And the professor said, I'm the scholar. I just describe what I'm seeing. Where are all the adopters? And then I talked with my good friend, Poon Han, and said, okay, we are adopters. We could try to look into this. So that is how things started. So what sort of... Uh online seminar was this? Who was organized by? There were actually five seminars. Uh, some of them were organized by, I think it's a committee on low birth rate. And there was also uh, different organizations. Uh, that was uh, CoRoot. They had uh, just published a book uh, describing uh, 10 cases of uh, alleged uh, falsifications uh, of adoption. Okay, so it was Korean scholars who yes. first... Uh, shed light perhaps on this issue but it was Korean adoptees themselves who looked further into it you're saying so what did the adoptees find how exactly have adoptees discovered that their records uh, were were falsified we started actually looking on our own files and uh, we found something that didn't match so we actually took all the events and listed them up so like domino pieces and we could see that the domino pieces actually based on dates didn't fall in the right row so um, then we actually also looked th- through the documents that uh, people were described as uh, orphans, but suddenly they have found biological family uh, in, in, in uh, Korea. And then we thought, you can't be both an orphan and then have a mother and a father in Korea. Uh, and then yeah, more severe um, things appeared. Uh, adoptees who could remember they've been abducted, abducted in Korea, stolen. Uh, there were cases with sexual abuse, uh, a lot of nasty things. And we said, okay, let's look into it. And then we actually called, I think within two weeks, we got the first 51 cases from Denmark. And then uh, I think adopters from all over the world wrote us and then within the next 14 days we collected another 200 plus cases and uh, on the 9th of December we submitted the last uh, bundle of cases altogether four submissions um, so this is what we could 
do in the very short time. Um, and then the uh, commission decided to look into the cases. And this decision has been so important because then it opened for investigations in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, France, Switzerland. So actually the decision of the commission uh, in Korea, uh, that decision reaches far beyond the borders of uh, Korea. And right now in my own country, Denmark, uh, they have just made a small first of one, uh, the first uh, report about Korea specifically, and they conclude that have been falsifications of documents from Holt and KSS, and they also looked at the money. They say there has been, in you know, in the polite way, an unfortunate uh, incentive, uh, yeah, of everything about the money. So right. they, yeah. So uh, the things what we have uh, said has now been confirmed by the Danish government. Right. So. Within a couple of weeks, you found 50 cases already. Yeah. So what does that say about the scale of this issue then, about how many uh, adoptees, what percentage, for example, have been affected? That means that we have just scratched the 1% of the iceberg and uh, there are so much more to learn. And that's also why we are so happy that the Korean uh, Commission is investigating this. And we've just been told that uh, they would take another year, they would extend the investigation another year. And again, it is so important because the work of the, Co the Korean Commission is actually leading the way for all other uh, countries in the world. So Korea is right now the leading country on human rights issues con uh, in relation to adoption. And this is so amazing. Okay. So you said you went through your own documents to find out as well. What did you find... And what did you feel? What went through your mind? Um, I also discovered that I was registered as an orphan, but my biological mother was described in the file. So immediately I thought, how can this be that you are described as an orphan, but you, at the same time your mother is described in this? So I felt a little bit, I would call it maybe cheated. What is going on here? Um... And I think most adoptees, they have the same feeling as me. Uh, we want some kind of disclosure about what went on, because what it could have been actually quite easy. If, it, if my document said, uh, your mother was extremely poor, so she hoped to give you a better life uh, mm. in Denmark or abroad, uh, I would understand this that there was this wish that would give some kind of uh, uh, of uh, explanation but and then i don't understand why making children orphans why even try because actually it would be a much better explanation just to tell the truth that your mother was poor and that gives the the yeah what we can see is that that is all also not true in all the cases, because most of the mothers we have talked to, they have never given their way a child away for, uh, uh, voluntary. They have been f uh, forced to do it, or their children has have been uh, stolen. So I think most of our uh, most of adopters they think like I do. I think we want to know if our biological parents gave us away 
uh, voluntarily, mm. and we also know want to know uh, what actually happened because there is the possibility that you have been stolen or you have been your parents have been forced to give you away. What is the commission then doing at the moment? What is the commission uh, looking for? What progress has the commission made? Oh, uh, they they are working extremely hard. Uh, we don't know the results. We have been told that uh, they're going to make um, a report. Uh, we still put in evidence to the commission to give them uh, to shed light on what is happening, especially from the receiving countries. So I, I think. Uh, Three weeks ago, I submitted 5,000 uh, documents of evidence, and very soon we're going to submit uh, another yeah, five, 6,000 uh, documents. Uh. Okay, so the commission haven't revealed what they've found no. yet, you're saying, but just the fact that they opened uh, this investigation into it, it's opened doors for other countries to begin investigations yes. themselves. Yes. Uh, so that's, uh, that's the knock-on effect you were saying exactly. earlier. So what are adoptees hoping will result from this investigation? What is the outcome that you are looking for? The most important thing is that we get the truth about adoptions from South Korea. The second thing is that we get access to our documents. I hope that the uh, outcome of the commission would be a clear uh, uh, conclusion that we have the access, we should have the access to our own personal uh, information. Uh, in, in the receiving countries right now, there's a discussion about um, placing responsibility. So one third thing, outcome, could be that also to place uh, responsibility. It would be natural also to place responsibility uh, on the parties that have been involved in this. It, it, this is not only, you know, the Korean uh, agencies. We can see from the documents that uh, it also, it is also my my own country, the mm. adoption agencies there, also maybe the authorities and the government. Right, well, right now, Sweden, Denmark and Norway, I believe, have suspended uh, international adoptions specifically from Korea, yes. uh, as well as some other countries over concerns about this situation with the records. Uh, what do you make of this decision by those countries? I think it's a really wise decision. Uh, based on what is coming, uh, what what. What is coming out now uh, is a very wise decision. If you know something is wrong, uh, it is a good idea to stop and look at it. It is not only Koreans, it is also adopters from India, Bangladesh, Colombia. So we're looking at a worldwide problem here. So I think it's extremely wise and I think uh, that uh, authorities, they would look into what went wrong here and give us the truth about this, because there are two sides of the story. There's right. the sending country and then the receiving country. Right. So if you're looking from the side of the sending country, so it's the government working with private adoptive, adoption agencies together uh, that sent children abroad. So what response have they given so far to some of the concerns and uh, allegations that have been raised uh, so far? The governments, they have been... Until now, very open. Uh, I think it's amazing that Korea is the first country, the Korean government and Korean state is the first country in the world to open for uh, uh, adoptions uh, from Korea. And actually, to confront the dark history, uh, it takes a lot of courage. And uh, again, Korea is a leading country when it comes to, to this. And a lot of countries right now, they are following uh, the example of Korea. So 
what what we're also looking at that is that we can see from the documents and the evidence that there has has been a lot of uh, what to call it uh, correspondence between on high level uh, between the, the politicians governments on high level uh, through history so also to see we're talking about the truth, also to reveal what actually went on. We can see in some of the documents that it looks like secret agreement between Korea and my own country, Denmark, where they actually, the conditions from the Korean government at that time was to keep things secret, uh, no publicity. So we're going to ask the Danish government, what is this all about? How can you make such uh, agreements uh, secret for the public? Uh, an official from HALT, one yes. of the main uh, adoption agencies here in Korea, have uh, expressed regret, saying there seems to be perhaps misunderstandings between adoptees due to legal and cultural differences. Yes. In other words, uh, they said under relevant laws until 2012, when a child was admitted to an adoption agency, they had to make a separate family register for the child. Some adoptees seem to mistake this with orphan registration. Yes. And therefore, in other words, there was some misunderstanding. Also understand that uh, for legal frameworks to be put in place for overseas adoptions, they had to use the term orphan as an immigration term. Whereas, in other words, the definition of an orphan was essentially different mm. from what we might consider in English and mm. what, uh, th what was the legal definition here yeah. in Korea. Yeah. What do you make of uh, those points made? I, I can say now, looking at the Danish report, the conclusions, the Swiss uh, report, governmental report, and the French investigation report states clearly that there was a systematic lack of uh, consent. Actually, one of the one of the conclusions from Denmark, made by uh, a law scholar, uh, he he says that you you actually can't see that children were legally. Uh, found and uh, uh, processed through the system. And that makes the big problem here. So this is not a misunderstanding of legal or cultural differences because the framework was the same. Denmark needed a consent. Korea needed a consent. There was so clear regulations on this. And there's no evidence that this have ever been followed. So again taking the Danish and Swiss and French uh, investigation, the conclusions there actually can say it doesn't confirm the, uh, the statement from Holt. Right, and there have also been other concerns about how Korea registers uh, births uh, until uh, recent changes in law. If, you, if the parents didn't register the baby uh, directly to the government, there was no record of children's births, and therefore that allowed people legally to treat children as orphan if they were given up for adoption. Uh, and that is also another concern that's been raised. Therefore, even though we knew who the parents mm. were, they weren't necessarily uh, orphans, but they were defined that way here yeah. in Korea. What, what we can see is from... Uh, we've talked a lot uh, with uh, biological parents, uh, and they tell another story. Uh, stories of children being stolen, children placed in institutions and then disappearing. Uh, again, the consent is very important. The birth registration in Korea also still is a problem. Uh, 
because a, a child can actually disappear because you don't have universal uh, birth registration. So to stop this, uh, universal birth registration is the most important thing. Uh, we've talked with uh, former whole president, Mr. Boo, explained to me personally that, okay, the child this didn't exist because it had never been registered. Uh, even the children who died, they were not death registered. So if you, as long as you have children, ghost children, so to say, uh, then people who want to yeah, use it as right. commodities, they can do it. Uh, what is it that uh, people should note about this? Why is this an important issue for adoptees? Some might say that Korea, especially in the 70s, 80s, they were struggling economically and therefore they were giving up their children because they wanted their children to have better futures overseas. And many of them might have had better yeah opportunities in Denmark or in the US or wherever I believe up to 200,000 uh, children have been sent overseas since yes. the uh, Korean War. Why is this an important issue for adoptees? Because knowing that you have not that you have be, that you have been traded like uh, toothbrush or brushes or uh, cars or something that's not nice. Also that we actually want to know what our background uh, is. Uh, it's very important for people to know what is our background. Also for the present and for the future, Korean children, they should never be... They should be respected. And one of the things we have aimed with our project is also uh, to do for Korean children that what didn't happened at that time. We, we would like to protect Korean children to be treated the, the same way. So we're ta talking about basic rights of the children in, in Korea that they should never be sold uh, because Korea is still sending uh, children abroad and that should be stopped. Right, and obviously there's records of a lot of trauma from yeah. uh, children who have uh, been adopted uh, feeling especially that they were abandoned yeah. and uh, finding out... Uh, different things from yes. their own research. So then what is your hope? What is what is your goal uh, at the moment then? To, what do you want to see from the government and from the authorities? I, I hope that we get the truth, that we get access to our documents, and with the truth, actually to build uh, another system in Korea where you take care of the children. And, and this should be a lesson, never to go back to... Uh, uh, back in time and... And this should not uh, reoccur. Well, uh, we appreciate you sharing your story with us today. And uh, thank you for your time mm -hmm. as well. Uh, we are going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking to attorney Peter uh, Muller, head and co-founder of the Danish Korean Rights Group. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Did you know that Korea24 is active on social media? You can do more than just listen to Korea24. You can find out what the team has been up to on Korea24's social media accounts. We are on Instagram on KBS underscore Korea24, where we post about our weekly segments from Monday's sports segment to Friday's movie spotlight. Sometimes we share snippets of the team's day behind the scenes so you can get to know us better. On YouTube, we upload film versions of our segments, and you can also check out what other language services have been up to. 
Find us on at KBS World Radio Service. Make the most of your Career 24 experience by following us on social media. is a segment that has remained unchanged in our shake-up. It is a Monday Sports Roundup, a weekly dive into the world of sports in Korea. And with the latest updates and analysis, we have joining us on the line, long-time contributor and friend of the show, sports reporter Yu Ji-ho from the Yanap News Agency. Ji-ho, hello. It's great to talk to you again. Hi, it's great to be here too. Okay, so we begin at the AFC Asian Cup in Qatar. South Korea made it through to the top 16 of the competition, but after a shock 3-3 draw against Malaysia last week, they finished second in their group, and expectations of winning the competition have been dampened. They will now face Saudi Arabia in the first knockout match this week. Jiho, can you preview that match for us? Yeah, the match kicks off uh, just about 1am Wednesday morning in Korean time. And uh, it's the round of 16 between Korea and Saudi. The first meeting since uh, Korea actually beat them 1-0 in a friendly in Wales in September last year. And that was the first win for Korea under the new, new coach, uh, Jürgen Klinsmann. And uh, if you look at uh, the last uh, group stage matches for both countries, Korea actually came within minutes of winning Group E and playing Japan in the round of 16. But then Korea gave up the late equalizer to Malaysia uh, to set up for a 3-3 draw against uh, war number 130, uh, uh, the team, last Thursday. And uh, Saudi uh, had a draw, goalless draw against Thailand to win Group F. So here we are going uh, uh, going up against uh, Korea. Now, the public criticism on Klinsman and the, I guess the rest of the team really reached a fever pitch in the aftermath of the draw, which was a really disappointing result, given the, I guess, the gap between those two, two, two countries, not only in the world rankings, but just in the talent level. But Klinsman has preached patience. Uh, he said he was still confident that his team could win the tournament. Uh, you know what? I don't, I don't know if there's a, the feeling is mutual among the fan base here. Uh, Korea really have not done much to live up to their pre-tournament hype uh, as uh, one of the tighter favorites. Um, so there's a lot to... Um, there's a lot on Korean team to prove their naysayers wrong by, you know, I guess, at least reaching the final at this point. Yes, fans have been bitterly disappointed with the performances so far. But still, they are in the competition still, and that means there's mm-hmm. still a chance. So, Gio, what's it going to take for Korea to beat Saudi Arabia again? Yeah, you know, I think there's got to be some secondary uh, offense coming from some other sources other than guys like Lee Gang-in and Son Heung-min. Um, you know, Lee Gang-in leads the team with three goals, and Sony has two penalties, but he doesn't have an open-play goal yet at this tournament. And these two, obviously, they draw a lot of, in- a lot of attention from the defense. Whenever they have the ball, they, you know, usually two or three guys will collapse on them. Uh, it's not going to change as long as Korea are playing in this tournament. So the problem is, uh, you know, this team, the way they're set up, the way they're structured, the way Klinsman is kind of running the things, they rely way too much on their top end talent, and when they don't have uh, their top, when they when 
they're not they're being neutralized when they're not on the top of the game. Uh, you know, others really have to step up, and they have that hasn't been the case. Um, so it falls on you know guys like Cho Gyu-sung, the starting striker for the past three games. He really hasn't done much, and he was subbed out every every time. Um, you know, someone like uh, Hwang Hee-chan, who actually came off uh, the uh, came off the sidelines to make his return against Malaysia. Uh, he looked, I guess, pretty solid. He should be good to go to start against Saudi on, uh, later this week. And that's really one positive takeaway, I think, from the Malaysian draw. Uh, the fact that Hwang Yichan returned, along with Kim jun Zhu, the left back, both of, whom, both of whom didn't play the first two matches. So I think Hwang in particular could provide some spark offensively. Uh, again, Cho Gyu-sung is really off his game. He's been really off target. Um, you know, Oh Hyung-gyu, his backup, hasn't really done much himself either. So they got to find some other ways to create chances and score goals other than look to keep looking into guys like Lee Gang and Son Hung-min to do the damage for them. Yes, another consequence of finishing second in the group meant that for fans in Korea, the remaining games that Korea are involved in will take place late in the early hours of the morning. So another reason that fans uh, will not have appreciated the performances. Uh, the game against Saudi Arabia, for example, will take place 1am Wednesday, Korea time once again. Uh, meanwhile, Jiho, any other round of 16 matches to watch? Yeah, there are a couple of uh, matches with some Korean connection over, over last night, uh, Sunday night. And actually, we no longer have any Korean connection remaining after Paolo Bento, remember him, the former coach for South Korea, and the UAE lost to uh, Tajikistan 5-3 on penalties in the round of 16. And Indonesia, they're being coached by uh, Bento's predecessor, uh, Shin Tae-yong. They fell to Australia 4-0 on Sunday night. Uh, so Korea will play Australia in the quarterfinals if they get uh, past Saudi Arabia in the round of 16. Upcoming matches, uh, Japan versus Bahrain on Wednesday. Uh, Bahrain, of course, won Group E ahead of Korea after beating Jordan in the uh, final group match. So they're going to be running into a Japanese team that, you know, also suffered a bit of an upset, losing to Iraq 2-1 to in their first, I guess, the major upset of this, this tournament. And host, host country in the defending champions, Qatar, uh, will play Palestine early Tuesday morning as well. So, so still a lot of, uh, I guess, interesting matches to look forward to, even if uh, uh, they don't involve Korea. Okay, let's turn now to the latest from the 2024 Kangwon Winter Youth Olympics. It will be coming to a close on Thursday, but uh, Gio, can you update us on the situation? How has Korea done so far on home soil? Yeah, pretty well. Uh, Through uh, actually Monday afternoon, the host country Korea has five gold medals, five silver medals and four bronze medals. And uh, Monday afternoon, uh, Kim Hyun-gyum in men's figure skating won the uh, men's singles title. Uh, he becomes the uh, first Korean man to win a figure skating gold medal at the uh, Winter Youth Olympics. Uh, back in 2020, Yoo Young won the uh, women's singles title, but Kim, at 17, becomes the first Korean man to do it in figure skating. So he scored 216.73 points in total. Uh, he had the third best score in the short in, in the uh, show program back on Saturday, 69.28. Then on free skating Monday, he had 147.45 points. That's the highest among 18 skaters in, in this event. Um, so he brought Korea their fifth gold medal of the Youth Olympics. And uh, so far, Korea has won seven medals combined from short track and speed skating. So that's not really a surprise, given the uh, impressive pipeline of talent that just keeps coming up in those two skating events. 
and also a couple of medals from bobsleigh and skeleton. Uh, gold medal in snowboard with uh, uh, Lee Chae-won winning the uh, uh, big, uh, actually slope-style gold medal last week, and a silver medal in women's three-on-three hockey, and a couple of freestyle free skiing medals so far as well. Right, so quite a range of medals actually uh, mm-hmm. in some sports in that career doesn't uh, didn't always have the greatest track record in traditionally either. So that is encouraging to see. Only a few more days left now. Gio, what are some events to watch out for in the final days of this event? Yeah, so we just talked about men's figure skating. Uh, we've got the women's uh, free skating figure skating coming up on Tuesday. Uh, Shinjiya of Korea ranked third after Sunday's show program with 66.48 points. And her main rival this ongoing season, Mao Shimada of Japan, she leads the way with 71.05 points, followed by another Japanese skater, Yo Takagi, with 67.23. So there's a bit, little bit of gap between Shin and Shimada at this point, but uh, not insurmountable in, in the free skate. Uh, Shin made a slight mistake with the landing of the uh, opening triple flip in the show program. And she could only follow that with the uh, double toe loop in combination instead of a intended triple toe loop. So that cost a little points there. Now in ice dance, uh, Kim Jin and Ina Mu ranked third after the rhythm dance. Their free dance goes also Tuesday, so they're going to go for medal as well. Now snowboarder Lee Chae I mentioned he won the uh, uh, slope style gold medal. He's going for the second gold medal in half pipe, which is his main event. And that's on Thursday, which is the last day of this uh, Youth Olympics. Um, so he suffered a bit of a minor ankle injury during training. He skipped a big air on Sunday so that he could focus on trying to win a medal, try to win a medal in half pipe. Now, uh, you know, women's half pipe phenom Che Gaon pulled out of uh, this Youth Olympics last week after suffering a little bit of a back injury during the World Cup event. So not having her around is a bit of a disappointment, but uh, Lee won uh, potentially could cap off the uh, Olympics with a gold medal for the home country. Okay, let's move on to some concerning off-season baseball news now. The Kia Tigers of the KBO said Sunday that they've suspended manager Kim Jong-guk from his duties, with Kim being under prosecutor investigation over apparent bribery charges. This came just before the start of their spring training. So what's the latest here? Yeah, so another bit of off-season controversy for the Kia Tigers as their manager Kim Jong-guk uh, faced questioning from prosecutors recently over a, what uh, a team official said yesterday were charges of accepting bribes. And the Tigers apparently apparently decided he could no longer carry out his duties as a manager, so, so he was suspended. And prosecutors on Monday filed for a, an arrest warrant for Kim, and it turned out that he and also former general manager Chang Jong-suk are being accused of accepting bribes and other former gifts from a coffee chain uh, in exchange for helping to make th- make that company an official sponsor for the Kia Tigers. Uh, so, you know, here is the, the, the situation is the Tigers are scheduled to travel to Australia on Tuesday to begin spring training. And uh, obviously, Kim Jong-go having been suspended, their bench coach, Chin Gap-yong, will be in charge uh, of the, of the t- training camp. And uh, Kim Jong-go was named the manager just before the 2022 season. Uh, he spent his, his uh, entire playing career with the team, uh, was a coach for them for about a decade, uh, led them to the postseason in his, in his first year in charge, came up just shy last season. So he'd been, he, you know, he'd been doing pretty well, I, could, I guess, relatively speaking. Um, but um, you know, this uh, situation came up. Uh, it looks like uh, his future uh, with the team is already being numbered. 
Chang uh, Jung-sok, the former GM, also being uh, accused of taking the bribes from this coffee company. He'd already been sacked last season, actually two days before the start of last season, after uh, demanding a kickback from a free agent player during the contract talks. Well, this is definitely not what Korean baseball needed at the moment with its reputation tanking in mm-hmm. recent years. And sadly, it comes after an exciting season, a KBO season last year. Jiho, how damaging could this be for the reputation of uh, the KBO and for the Tigers as well? Oh, this is devastating. And, you know, Tigers, they're one of the more, most popular teams in the league. Uh, they draw really well. The fans uh, really travel well. Even if they play road games, sometimes their fans outnumber fans, fans from the home side. So, uh, you know, coming from this team in, in particular, I think it's really damaging. Um, but like you said, the KBO has had a lot of off-field issues in recent years, whether it's bribery, uh, you know, asking for kickbacks from free agents, a lot of uh, sexual misconduct, uh, drunk driving cases, you name it, you know, Teams and players and officials have been in trouble, all, all different, different types of trouble in recent years. And this obvious, obviously does not help, especially coming off, like you said, such a memorable season with the LG Twins ending their long title drought. So, uh, you know, the Tigers most likely will have to name a new manager, I think, before the season. And um, this is unfortunate, I think, uh, to have this come out just before the start of spring training, which is usually and a time when hope springs eternal and you know, everybody's on the same page, uh, everybody starts from a zero, uh, especially the Tigers. You know, they've kind of put together a pretty decent team going into the new season, and they're considered by some pundits as to be one of the mm. hope potential title contenders this year. Right. And you know, it looks like they're going to have to go with, with a new manager uh, for the new season. It is unfortunate indeed. Uh, despite the situation with the KBO, enthusiasm by the fans for baseball remains, as we can see in the fact that the tickets for the very first major league baseball regular season game to be played here in Korea went on sale last week. And Jiho, I understand they were sold out in just eight minutes. Uh, you know, probably less than that also. Uh, you know, the LA Dodgers and the San Diego Padres are scheduled to play in Korea on March 20th and 21st. At Kochuk Skyrim in Seoul, uh, that's part of the uh, MLB Seoul series, the first regular season games to be played in Korea ever. And the tickets for the first game on March 20th went on sale last Friday online, and they were all snatched up within eight minutes. Now, this stadium has a capacity of 16,000, and there's no official word yet on how many of those seats will be available to the general public and how many will go to, go to you know, sponsors or MLB officials or even U.S. servicemen uh, in station in Korea, uh, so there's a you know really uh, stiff competition to grab one of those tickets. Tickets for the next game on March 21st will go on sale online on March 1st, 8 p.m. Uh, at the website for Coupon Play, which is the official ticketing provider and a marketing partner for MLB for these two games. So I would expect them to be sold out within minutes, perhaps even less than eight minutes next, next time. Indeed. Well, that's where we're going to wrap it up for our roundup today. Jiho, thank you for those updates, and we'll catch up with you again next time. Okay, thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. We hope our listeners enjoy the new uh, changes. We'll be back tomorrow with more news, views, and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope all our listeners have a wonderful day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.
KBS World Radio.